Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From NewSounds.org and the studios of WNYC in New York, this is Soundcheck, our series of live performances and interviews. I'm John Schaefer. John Leventhal has spent almost half a century producing, playing for, and co-writing with some of the music world's most familiar names. Elvis Costello, Willie Nelson, Blind Boys of Alabama, and of course Roseanne Cash, with whom Leventhal shares both a marriage and a long musical partnership. He's won a fistful of Grammys too, but the one thing he hasn't done in all that time is a solo record, until now. Rumble Strip is a collection of instrumentals, a few songs, a surprising cover or two, and it brings John Leventhal back to our studio, and he's going to start us off the way the album begins with a short piece called Floyd Kramer's Dream. That is John Leventhal live here in our studio, and uh, the piece that begins his record, Rumble Strip, it's called Floyd Kramer's Dream. John, good to see you. Good to see you, John. It's been a minute. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose Floyd Kramer's dream would have been that I wouldn't have to say to you, who's Floyd Kramer? <laughs> yeah, but you'd be surprised how many people do <laughs> need that information at yeah, this point. So, yeah. so who, who was Floyd Kramer? Well, he was like the premier Nashville session pianist who had a long, a lengthy and quite remarkable recording career as a session player. Mm-hmm. And then eventually he kind of branched out on his own as a artist, made records. His most famous piece is called Last Date. He sort of developed this thing, which in Nashville they refer to as slip note, which is that you kind of hammer up to the third or the fifth, or honestly any note, and uh, it became the style of country piano playing, really, for now moving close to 70-some-odd years, which is kind of amazing. Wow, wow. I mean, I'm being a tad tongue-in-cheek with that song because I don't think he would never uh, he would never traverse that particular kind of harmony. But 
But there were some kind of quick yeah. little passing notes there yeah. in, in, your, in your piece. There were. Uh, interesting bit of uh, almost misdirection because the album begins with you at the piano. Yeah. Most of us know you as a guitarist. This and, is true. and you spend most of the rest of the album on that instrument. Uh, but in a sense, it, it, it's a good piece to start with for the reason you just said. Here was a guy who made his bones playing for other people, working, you know, behind the scenes, and at some point stepped out and began a productive solo career. Now, it's taken you a little longer than it took him. <laughs> yeah. yeah if, I could add, if only I'm as, success, as successful as Floyd. Um, I, I mean, I think you're right. It's, it's a little misdirection on my part because, uh, well, there's two reasons. One is I think the, the, the natural sort of thing for me to have done would be to make some sort of guitar record, whatever right. that is, uh, which I've never all, been all that interested in, even though, you know, I'm a guitarist by trade, and I did make my living as a kind of a session guitar player before I moved to production. I've never been that interested in it as a means to an end. Mm. Um, it's just a vehicle for me to write, more or less, and to occasionally be expressive on. But then the other thing is, this was literally, I had sort of vaguely been thinking about making this record for a while, but, uh, you know, would basically do anything to avoid it, uh, produce somebody else, <laughs> and, you know, make dinner, raise children, whatever it was. And when the pandemic hit, I'm sure you remember that first few weeks, which is so disorienting, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and I just went down, and I'm lucky enough to have a studio in our townhouse in Chelsea. And I went down there, and this that little piece came out. And I, for me, it just sort of felt like the door opened to something, which is, well, if you're ever going to make this record, this is the time. You and got be, nothing else going yeah, on. Yeah, and be and be in the moment, and let let what's happening sort of affect you. I mean, I actually tried to like write more for that tune, and every time I would try to write it and make it more of a record or more, I didn't like it. What I liked about it is that not to compare myself to Charles Ives in any way, but it's kind of like the unanswered question. It just when I didn't complete it, it felt more like where the journey I was starting. Yeah. If that makes sense. So. Um, Charles Ives' unanswered question yeah. is very t- this kind of very mystical yeah, sounding piece. Piece, piece. Early class, yeah. uh, early twentieth century classical music. There is a certain sense on on a lot of the pieces on this record of you playing it a little close to the you know it's not like putting stuff out there and and here it is and you and I both know exactly what it is it's a little mystery to a lot of it it seems that's good I think that's good yeah for me anyway yeah um so there are some full band pieces there are some songs there there is some solo guitar music yeah um with the songs those are co-written right they are one with uh, my wife, um, and one with my old friend Mark Cohn, who mm-hmm. I've also collaborated with extensively over the decades now, and then one with Matt Berninger from the National. Oh, who, which really? Is like, yeah, kind of a newer relationship. And which one is that? Is that uh, if it's only called you? "If You Only Knew." Yeah. I stay in the shadows. I slip in the cracks. I figured it out. You know I thought it all. If I slip out the back Yeah, I'm totally ruined 
wrote the lyrics and I wrote the music. Um, you know, originally wrote it uh, for Roseanne and Matt to sing as a duet. And so I demoed it up, you know. Yeah. Thing, and then sort of one thing led to another and Matt got involved in the most recent national record. Right. And, and I listened to the demo and I thought, well, if I just make a little section where I can play some guitar, it's kind of a weird tune in a good way. Yeah. And he graciously said, yeah, man, put it in your record. So there you go. Well, you, you're involved in the last national uh, We played, uh, I played some guitar in one of the tracks and Roseanne sang harmony in one of the tracks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was fun. Um, the, the song you did with Mark Cohn called The Only Ghost, there's a strange story behind there that. There is a little bit of a story behind that. I should have been long Time is flying by. I would say this like the year before the pandemic, probably, which would be 2019, I right, guess. Right, right. Um, uh, from a producer and asking me if I'd be interested in mixing uh, Dr. John's, what turned out to be Dr. John's last record, Mac Rebinac's last record. Um, and of course, I was thrilled to do it. You know, it's one of the things. So I, I've been a recording engineer along with everything else all these years, mm -hmm. and uh, I do love mixing. And I love Mac. Um, and, uh, and of course, being a little songwriter that I am, I started <laughs> thinking like, wow, it'd be great to get Mac to do a song, right? Yeah. So Mark and I started this song about an aging musician, which I thought was perfect, right? And then, but sadly, uh, what I didn't know when we started it was Mac had begun a pretty deep descent into, I don't know what the, the final diagnosis was, but it was some Alzheimer's or dementia. And right. he was losing the ability to do things. Um, and so it didn't, the moment never arose where it made sense to pitch it to him. Because um, uh, my friend, Shane Terrio, did, who produced the record, did a heroic job of actually pulling it together as Max was really dying, yeah. and uh, which is quite moving. But anyway, I ended up mixing the record, and I had this song about an aging musician. <laughs> and I thought, well, God. I guess I've earned it now, you know, so <laughs> I just kind of ran with it. Yeah. So there you go. Um, the, the, the song you're going to play next for us uh, is JL's Hymn Number 2. The album also concludes with JL's Hymn Number 3. Notable by its absence is any Hymn Number 1. I gave that to Rodney Crowell. Oh, yeah. okay. In the middle of the pandemic, uh... Rodney called me, he was making a record, he said, do you have any pieces of music? And I had just written the first hymn. I wasn't intending to write all these hymns. I do love, I, I do have a feeling for hymns. Um, as I say, you know, they can kind of look sorrow straight in the eye, but still leave you with some hope, which mm. is, I think in some ways, I'm always trying to do when I write, in, you know, in some strange way. Um, so Rodney, so I gave him hymn number one which I think he then called him 49 or something like that because <laughs> okay. he didn't call it him number one. He wrote some lyrics to this hymn I wrote. And I had these two other hymns, and um, I thought they were good sort of ways to open and close the record. Well, what makes it a hymn to you? 
I think the thing I just described, which is you can sort of sense this kind of the sorrow, but that there's a kind of thing at the end where you can feel the light and want to move toward the light, which is, I think, uh, what I always find, particularly in Anglican hymns mm-hmm. and great, like, uh, you know, uh, Southern, like, Baptist hymns, both black and white church and... Um, you know, some of the old sacred harp. Yeah, like, why am I drawn to that? I don't know why I'm drawn to that. I always have been. I really, even when I was little, like that, that, those, that kind of melodic and harmonic motion that it's in classic hymns, I I definitely like, and I've used extensively. I mean, I'm not alone. It's like, in some ways, it's the foundation for a certain element of soul music. Of course, yeah. uh, Country music, uh, folk music, right? It's it's a foundational sensibility that uh, I like. But, you know, and I like doing my own thing, too, as well. But with the exception of shape note hymns, where sometimes the tune and the text can be divorced from each other, yeah. and you can mix them up in all these different totally. ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We generally think of hymns as text first. You know, that's where you get the the message that you're talking about, you know, right. looking sorrow in the face, but still finding hope. It's not about the text to me, John. It's yeah. always about, like whatever the thing that music does that we can't verbalize that we mm. can't put into text whatever that thing is that we're all navigating that we're all dancing around that we all feel connected to that's what it is for me it's saying something i couldn't possibly write down yeah i don't think all right well uh let's hear jl's hymn number two my guest john leventhal this is one of the tracks on his first ever solo album called rumble strip
Well, as cadences go, that's a pretty unusual one to end that uh, that song. Well, there's that pesky Charles Ives shaking <laughs> his head in again. <laughs> that's JL's hymn number two by JL himself, John Leventhal, live here in the studio. His new album is called Rumble Strip. Um, it presents as a solo acoustic guitar piece, but of course you're feeding it through some, you know, effects pedals and out of the out of the amplifier. What is what does that do for the sound for you? Uh, that is a great question that nobody's ever actually asked me. People are always asking about the gear that I use to do it. <laughs> you know, it just it's it generates the amp generates a little kin- slightly kinetic energy for me that moves it away from the purity of like acoustic instruments and I love acoustic instruments but I like the marriage of these two these two worlds I feel like that's kind of been my career too where I've you know I think in some ways people tend to think of me as a roots musician right exactly yes Um, and I do I have a deep deep feeling for it and respect for the tradition and stuff but I also love pop music you know I've had you know I won a Grammy for like record and song of the year for pop hit Song called Sonny Came Home. So, I, I mean, Sean, I like that. Uh, yeah. Sean Colvin. Yeah, yeah. I did close my eyes in Which is like a rocking track. So, I like both worlds and just, it seems like a, it's my voice to kind of somehow marry yeah. these two things together. So, you're you're a native New Yorker, right? I am. Yeah. Um, how people are always surprised to find out how long-standing and deeply rooted traditions like bluegrass have been here in New York City. Hey, we were the epicenter of the folk revival in the early late fifties, early sixties. Right. That's where all that stuff started, for sure. So, how? What was your kind of road from being? urban New York City kid to the guy that we think of as this you know, roots guitar. That's another great question. I, I mean, if I, I don't, you know, I don't have black and white linear answers to this. Like, the music that got into my DNA is the music that got into my DNA. Why certain things did and other things didn't, I don't know. But, um, you know, so what would have been, so I was drawn to folk music, right? I mean, I was a little young to be at the epicenter of, like, the pre-Beatles, like, you know, early Dylan thing, but I grokked onto it pretty quickly once I got into music, and so that tradition impacted me, and I'm sure in some ways was a gateway to a lot of things, to Appalachian music, to the blues, to mm. country music, and then, you know, you can't really overstate the impact the Beatles had on a guy like me. Like, I was really at the epicenter of that explosion, and I've had this conversation with a lot of musicians my age, and the fact that they touched on a lot of that stuff, they didn't go deep into any of it, but you could hear echoes of country music in George's Harrison's playing. Um, there's a there's a Celtic folk thing to Norwegian wood. I mean, there's there's elements that they're starting to bring out that, you know, just for me, opened both literal and metaphorical doors about what I wanted to hear. And also, you can't understate the impact that Roseanne's dad had too as sort of oh you know because let's face it uh, did you grow up in New York because you know you didn't get real country music here yes I did grow up in New York right yeah so you didn't I knew who Johnny Cash was he was on TV right so Johnny Cash kind of impacted you know he which is you know one of the things that makes him this kind of iconic figure this you know Elvis and Abraham Lincoln in the same body right (laughs) 
No, that that is truly his appeal, and uh, that opens a little door too. Where yeah. like, you know, way before I met my wife, I mean, if you would have told me when I was a you know a senior in high school that I was going to marry his daughter, I would have like. Well, you know, it'd have been like you were talking, you know, uh, Venusian. I don't know what, right? So, don't know. But well, uh, and what about classical music? Because I mean, you've mentioned Charles Ives twice already. I do love Ives. The album includes, I'll call it a cover, of the Please. opening of of Aaron Copland's clarinet concerto, which he wrote for Benny Goodman. Yes. I mean, I'm like you. It's just I like it all. You know, if it's good, <laughs> I like it all. Uh, and I think I've been able to eke out this career because I think I've, if I like something and I'm sort of moved by it in a visceral way, I pay attention to it and try to get a little something out of it. You know, it, um, I've never gone super deep in any specific uh, discipline. But, you know, there's elements about bop that, you know, I could grok a certain harmonic thing, a certain linear thing, bluegrass, same thing. And the same goes for orchestral music. It's like, you know, I loved Copeland. When I, particularly when I was younger, when I was a kid, I just loved all that stuff, Billy the Kid and Appalachian Spring. And first time I heard the clarinet concerto, particularly that first adagio kind of movement, I was just like, it's, it's so simple, but I mean, it's folk music, but it's, yeah, but it's yeah. got this other, like, you know, slightly elevated harmony to it, but within the realm of this kind of heartbreaking, almost hymn-like yeah. right thing. So, so yeah, so here I am making my record in the pandemic, and um, I don't know why all this stuff came on my radar. I said, well, I love Copeland. Gee, I wonder if I could play that melody instead of a clarinet like Benny, like I'm um, Dwayne Eddy, you know, mm-hmm. and sort of transcribe the string section to acoustic guitar, which turned out to be relatively simple. And then the same with the other covers. Bernard Herrmann is a composer I've always loved. I mean, people associate him with the Hitchcock thriller thing. Mm-hmm. But if you really listen to his work, as I suspect you have, there's this incredible, heartbreaking, elegiac elements to some of his love themes, like from Vertigo. And and then uh, I just happened to be watching Psycho, and the cue he wrote for like the doom lovers janet lee and her lover before she goes to the motel it's just heartbreak i was just like god it's just gorgeous I wa- and i wanted to figure it out like well what's he doing i said well i'll record that so mm-hmm. that's marion and sam marion and sam yeah yeah A number of other kind of, if not classical, classic sounds that make some, at times, very fleeting cameo appearances. And I'm thinking specifically of the horns in three chord Monty. <laughs> great punning title, if, yeah. if great and punning can be used in, in proximity like that. Particularly if you're a New Yorker from the 70s exactly, and 80s. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yes. 
You know, where is three-chord Monty coming from? I have no earthly idea. I mean, I think if I really had to push, um, you know, Rye Cooter, Rye's whole, I, I mean, I think he's brilliant, right? Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. really just think he's brilliant, and he's brilliant in a way that's very moving to me. And, you know, a lot of guitar players um, are really into him and have adopted, like, his slide guitar thing and his guitar playing. He's a wonderful guitar player, and you could make a case that he basically invented... Uh, post-Delta slide get playing. Like, he reinvented it in the 60s, and pretty much everybody who came after him is indebted to him in one way or the other. And he was a gateway drug for many people to West African music. Uh, In uh, in Cuban music. Yeah. But the thing that really imprinted me the most was it's it's his the way he would take this these sort of different elements that he was clearly into and had sort of swam in the waters of... And he put them together in a way that was surprising and refreshing. So it's a version of the thing you're talking about, how to take a little or an element from Appalachian music and orchestral music and, you know, how I write a slightly odd Floyd Kramer thing, but there's a little Ivesian harmony at the end. And that, for me, is the template that Rye created. And... uh, you know, I had the good fortune to play a bunch of shows with them, like 2018, 2019. Mm. Rosa and I went out uh, with Rye and some musicians and did this kind of tribute to Roseanne's dad, which was very unusual for Rose because she's really tried not to do that. But when right. Rye said, let's do it, if mm-hmm. we were ever going to do it, he was the guy to do it. So I've had to, I've had to, I've seen the magic up close, and Rise Magic is very moving to me. So, yeah, very long-winded answer, but Three Chord <laughs> Monty to me, that's like Rye Cooter, just this weird uh, amalgam of all this different kind of stuff: horns, bass yeah. harmonica, Western swing guitar. Yes, you know, it's yeah. like, yeah, it's like I didn't even think twice; I just dove in. Yeah. All right, um, you and Roseanne co-wrote this next song. Um, and it is a duet on the record, but clearly you can perform it yourself. We're going to find out. <laughs> um, <laughs> I haven't yet. So how does this work? Did, did Roseanne do the lyrics and you did the music? Yeah, she had, uh, I just found this piece of paper with these lyrics on it and I didn't, wasn't quite sure like who or what it was about. Now I sort of know, but, but I'm not telling anybody because <laughs> I like the mystery much more. Um, yeah, and I was just kind of fooling around with it, and I thought, oh, well, this would be a good duet for us. So I actually wrote it. There's a kind of an art to writing duet melody, so I actually mm. wrote it as a duet, uh, and I'm going to sing one of the parts. And, uh, yeah, I just happened to find this riff that, to me, felt like if uh, the Stanley Brothers like lived in West Africa. Like mm. To me, it's like the combination of uh, Ollie Farcatore and some great Appalachian fiddle melody kind of thing. And, um, and, and these so lyrics that you found, they did turn out to be Roseanne's. They did turn out to be. Well, they were. I knew they were Roseanne's. Oh, you did. Okay. They were on our kitchen table. Yeah. <laughs> I figured that they had to be hers. Okay. <laughs> and I, I asked her to sing with her. She was a little, because uh, at that point I was kind of like, no, this could work for my record. And, and she was like, you sure you want me to sing on my record? And I'm like, yeah, you're upstairs in the kitchen. It's the <laughs> pandemic. Yeah. Come on. Let's go. <laughs> what else are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> All right. You want to you wanna sing a solo version of I'm it I'm going to give it a shot. All right, John Leventhal is my guest. The album's called Rumble Strip. By the way, he and Roseanne Cash will be performing here in New York at City Winery February 27th and 28th, so you'll hear John in his more customary position backing up Roseanne Cash, but 
Here he is solo with a version of That's All I Know About Arkansas. John Leventhal, live in the studio, the song That's All I Know About Arkansas, co-written with Roseanne Cash, and she sings a duet version on the record with John called Rumble Strip, but that's obviously a solo performance. And we, we've both mentioned this kind of sense of mystery in, in music making, and that song, I, I mean, you get a sense of a narrative but you're not really getting the full story, you know? So there's this like a little kind of mystery to it. Well, do we ever get the full story, John? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You know, there are some songs that just kind of sit yeah. there and they tell you what that's they true. are and, and that's what they are. Yeah. And I've always been drawn to songs that hold something back, leave a little room for you, to, the listener, to come in and kind of complete the picture, you know? Me too, brother. Me too. 
We agree on that. Paul Simon uh, likes to say, the listener completes the song. Oh, man, and this song, absolutely. Yeah, I can't tell you, like, everyone, well, who is it? What are you writing about? I'm like, you're going to have to help me finish it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What have you been up to post-pandemic? I mean, uh, The National was kind of a surprise. Yeah. What, who who um, else have you been I'll working t- well, with? Well, i tell you, the main thing we've been doing is uh, we've been involved. Uh, Roseanne and I have written the score to a musical. Really? Yeah. It seems like it's glacially moving along to, uh, you know, reality. So that's a main thing we've been involved with. I mean, I can, I can tell you what it is. It's basically we were approached, I don't know, man, six years ago uh, to write the score to a musical version of the film Norma Ray oh. from the 70s. Okay. Um, not your usual musical theater subject matter because it's about, you know, an attempted unionization of a yeah. textile mill in North Carolina in the mid-1970s. It doesn't scream like, let's make a musical. <laughs> yeah, so, right. Um, but we have. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're we're definitely threading the needle where it's like something that at least I'm not seeing a lot on Broadway, which is it's kind of like a serious play with, that's a musical as well. So mm. you have to really kind of find that fine edge of the entertainment factor and the wow factor and but keep the substance to the characters and the narrative and so we'll see it's been it's uh been quite the task i will say totally different world from making records i was going to say yeah. i mean it's, it's got to be because you know a musical has a narrative and the songs need to move that narrative along well yeah i mean that's a classic thing like uh you know you're absolutely right it's like sometimes a great you know like in our world or the world you know sometimes what you want the song to do is to stop time and so sometimes you can write a great song for a play and just you can feel the air go out of the story, right? Because it's taking the audience to this place that is not moving it along. So that's the challenge. And, you know, it's a good challenge. I like it, actually. Hmm. I've learned a lot. And so it'll be <clears throat> called Norma Ray? It will be called Norma Ray, as far as I know, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, so keep, uh, yeah. keep an eye out. Yes, definitely. In the much less distant future, uh, February 27th and 28th, you're uh, helping Roseanne, Roseanne Cash at City Winery. Yeah. Performances there. Yeah. And Rumble Strip, out now, yes. finally. Please, <laughs> stream the living heck out of it, folks. Do me a favor. <laughs> keep John, streaming all day. John Leventhal, it's great to see you again. Thanks so see much you, for John, coming always, in. always, always. And thanks to Irene Trudell, our technical director, and our producer, Karen Havlick, who shot video of John's performances here today. I'm John Schaefer. You can keep up with everything we're doing on New Sounds by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter. Text New Sounds to 70101 or subscribe on the website at newsounds.org.